Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things that you can buy that will actually help you become a better deer hunter, or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This reason is why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current course setup consists of the Phantom saddle, Tethered one sticks, and the Predator platform, and along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times are to hunt. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've had an opportunity to use the desktop version last year and have been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store and download it today. Welcome to the Truth From the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 268. Today, we're taking a trip back in time yet again with a 2021 look back. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Hope the uh, winter storm that kind of passed through the Midwest and things of that nature uh, <clears throat> left you uh, dry, maybe not completely snowed or iced in. 
and uh, hopefully you got lucky and just got some uh and just got some rain um i'm hoping you know or at least uh the rain will do me some good get rid of some of the snow that's around me uh hopefully doesn't put a damper on my scouting plans like the snow did last year so fingers crossed i'm hoping get rid of this snow and i can start headed out uh here in the next week or two because i am getting a severe case of cabin fever and am ready to jump in the travel trailer and do a little exploring but we're not going to drag this up front out or belabor this up front i guess that's become my catchphrase now to a to a degree one of the stupid words that i use way too often uh but we are not going to belabor this up front we're going to just kind of get into things today uh two things i wanted to pass on to you guys before we jumped into today's podcast uh number one is if you are headed to the great american outdoor show here during this week or the the second week of the show or the second weekend of the show uh be sure to head over to the tethered booth that's booth 1033 and the exodus booth 927 and give my buddies there a shout tell them that i sent you there i was there this past weekend got to hang out see a lot of you folks um, that were at the show. So that's awesome. I always kind of dig being able to spend some time uh, at the booths at the show and, and, and get to meet people, you know, regardless of whether you listen to the podcast or not, you know, I meet people that don't. And it's always just cool to kind of hang out with a bunch of hunters for uh, for a weekend and, and talk shop. It's kind of an outdoor show. Yes, but it's also kind of doubles as a maybe the world's largest hunting camp might be one way to kind of explain what the great American outdoor show is. So be sure to stop at those booths and check those guys out. Also, if you're in the running for a trail camera or wanting to up your ante for trail cameras this year, I wanted to give you a quick heads up that our buddies at Exodus, you know, as you guys know, have been killing it in the outdoor space. They make, in my opinion, the best trail cameras that are out there and they back it with the best customer service in the industry. Over the last seven years, they've consistently just shown that they've built quality trail cameras that just flat out work. And they of course have that best warranty period that exists in the industry. Every single camera is backed by, by a five-year warranty and it comes with a theft and damage coverage. Yep. You heard that right. Literally half a decade. You'll be covered by the Exodus five-year warranty, but more than likely you won't need to use it because their cameras are already built to last. However, in honor of trade show season, knowing that not everybody is always able to get out to these shows, they gave me the heads up that they're providing a great buying opportunity for everyone who listens to this podcast to pick up their Exodus render, which is the 4G LTE cell camera that sends pictures and videos to any device that you might use, a mobile device, through the Scout Tech Tech app. You can save 15% by being one of the first 100 customers to use the code SHOWTIME. That's S-H-O-W-T-I-M-E. Use that promo code at checkout and get yourself some savings. This code will save you $50 on an Exodus render and almost $75 off the security bundle. These types of savings with these guys don't come around often, so I encourage you guys to check it out, out the deal. If you're in the market for a reliable trail camera, once again, the code is SHOWTIME to save 15% off any render purchase. Like I said before, you know these guys don't do a ton of sales. They do a handful of them throughout the year. Um, so if you are in the market for a truck camera, I wouldn't overlook the opportunity to save a little bit of cash and get yourself a, a truck camera with a kick-ass warranty. So head over to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and take advantage of the sale pronto. So with that, man, we're going to just jump into today's podcast. Uh, if you've listened to, I guess it was episode 266 maybe, I did a 2021 kind of year in review. Um, I used to do, and I think I'm going to probably bring this back. Greg and I have talked about bringing this back, doing the look back series. It's always kind of fun to do a handful of those throughout the year where Greg, you know, actually goes through the catalog of almost, you know, 268 podcasts and picks out the moments that he liked, uh, and what, and wants to kind of explore topics further. So what I started kind of doing is I don't go back and listen or re-listen to my own podcast. It, It just seems kind of weird to do that. Um, 
unless there's something that was stated by a guest that, that I wanted to re-listen to because I was learning something and I forgot maybe what they said, then I'll go back and kind of listen. However, I realized that I have this whole repository of information and it's kind of silly that I have it all at my fingertips and I don't ever go back and kind of revisit some of these things. And maybe I don't go back all the way into the archives. Maybe I just go back a year and kind of pick my favorite moments from the past year from specific guests from the past year to kind of revisit some of those. Some of them are very like uh, strategic, you know, and hunting strategy related. And some of them are just kind of cool stories that I thought were uh, really interesting, really cool or really impactful. Um, I thought it'd be cool kind of for me to do to kind of go back and kind of revisit some of these things uh, that I don't often get a chance to do. So that's what we're doing today. This is part number two. There'll probably be one more part of this, one more 2021 look back. It'll be part three. It'll come out in who knows, a couple weeks, um, week, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. But you, you can expect one more of these uh, year in review podcasts. So with that, today's session, uh, the guys that we're going to have on this episode is Nathan Killen, who, you know, Virginia, a lot of you guys probably know, know of him, big time mountain buck hunter, slayer, you know, just, just a, a, a straight killer. Um, one of my favorite podcasts from this year was with Eddie Claypool, and we have some clips from him that we're going to kind of talk through. Um, and then from that, uh, a good buddy of his, uh, Travis Keith was probably one of my favorite podcasts that I did this year, just because Travis is one of those guys that I kind of like to refer to as a quiet killer, very unassuming, just gets the job done, kills big deer, does it often, and just has a really kind of refreshing way as to how he approaches things. And, uh, just a really kind of humble way. And he shares, you know, a killer story at the end, which I thought was just, uh, an awesome way to kind of wrap this episode up. So with that, this first clip is from our buddy, Nathan Killen. I always say his name wrong. So I'm going to apologize. I think it's Nathan Killen, not Keelan, Killen. Um, and really what we're talking about in this particular clip is postseason scouting kind of perfect for this time of year. Um, and, what we started talking about was, you know, how often he goes back and kind of maybe revisits new areas that he's scouted in the past to kind of reevaluate or how often is he kind of looking at new ground and kind of expanding his horizon, so to speak. And then we get into this kind of topic around finding something, you know, finding something, you know, or finding nothing, I guess is the way we say it. Finding nothing is as good as finding something, meaning that Sometimes not finding the sign or the information you're looking for is just as good as finding it because it allows you to kind of remove some of those areas from your potential setups, you know, or tightens an area where a deer could be spending time. So that's what we talk about in this clip. So let's get to it. You know, how's your scouting been this year, man? I know, you know, I know you've been out getting after it. I guess, I mean, that might be an appropriate place to just kind of start the overall kind of deer, deer conversation, you know, just kind of curious, you know, what your, what your process is for kind of you know, dissecting the, the big woods, so to speak, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I know you do a lot of shed hunting, you know, are you kind of, you know, picking out certain areas? Are you trekking to new areas? Are you kind of going back to maybe familiar pieces and kind of seeing what sign has been laid down and maybe what has changed since maybe the last time you hunted it? I guess just talk to me about your overall kind of approach to, to, to prep for an upcoming season. Well, uh, you know, I always, uh, re-scout, uh, areas that I hunted the previous year, especially, you know, if there was bucks that I was hunting and, uh, I know that they made it through season, you know, of course I'm going to go in and, and, uh, uh, you know, try to locate their sheds and also, you know, dig into areas that, uh, I won't, wouldn't go into, you know, during hunting season, you know, places that I've kind of put off limits. Uh, and, you know, so this time of year I'm able to go in there and, and actually locate, you know, exactly where the deer have been bedding and, 
<laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, and also, you know, branch out into new areas. I I try to keep, you know, at least four or five areas, uh, uh, what I might say, scouted up, you know, and ready for hunting season, you know, the following year. That way I always have something to fall back on to, you know. Right. And, of course, you know, they have to have what I'm looking for, uh, you know, in those areas before I would even consider hunting them, you know, but that's, you know, that's part of why we scout, you know, yep. um, finding nothing is just as important as finding something, you know, so, right. uh, yeah, uh, but, no. uh, yeah, a lot of shit hunting and, uh, just scouting, you know, right. All right. This next clip is still yet again from our buddy, Nathan Killen. And, uh, you kind of heard a little bit about how he scouts, you know, finding sheds, of course, and, and, and things of that nature, which are all, uh, you know, shed hunting tr- quite truthfully is something I need to be better at. There's a lot of, uh, a lot to be gained, of course, by finding sheds as far as where deer wanting to spend time and maybe, you know, their quarry area are living. But speaking of the quarry area and where they're living and, you know, looking for, you know, quote unquote beds, um, that's what this next clip talks about, you know, is when we're talking about the big woods, you know, you know, how are you, how are we kind of locating bedding? Where is that bedding located? You know, uh, are we looking for pockets of deer? How is Nathan kind of going, going about that process? Uh, the one thing that we talk about a little bit in this, and it, I was really glad that we had a chance to talk about it, or he kind of specifically mentioned it because when we start talking about bed hunting, a lot of times people think of hunting a specific bed and some people do that. Greg Litzinger, great example of a guy who will hunt a specific bed. Dan Enfault, great example of someone who will hunt a specific bed. Um, Cody or Andre, you know, hunt a specific bed, right? Jake Bush, hunt a specific bed, right? In some instances, I know Jake will kind of, it's always bedding based. But one thing Nathan kind of talks about is that in order to hunt, you know, buck beds, if you will, you don't have to necessarily be necessarily be hunting the specific bed that that deer might be in especially when you're in the big woods it seems like they just aren't quite as consistent as they are maybe you know in areas that have more structure and so it's not so much about hunting a precise bed as it is uh, uh, finding the bedding area in which a buck a particular buck wants to call his home and he might have multiple beds in there and that and that bedding area could be you know, a, a range of sizes from a very small area to, you know, multiple acres in ter- of, of, of area. And so that is what we talk about in this clip. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like two things came to mind as you were kind of, kind of mentioned in betting and you were talking about consistent betting and there's, you know, and we, we might be able to talk about a specific parcel offline that we both have some familiar familiarity, <laughs> familiarity with, but like you, you said consistent betting and I've struggled to just in all truthfulness and finding consistent betting whenever I'm in, when I'm in the big woods, like there's certain pieces that I've hunted where, you know, it almost seems like it's random, you know, and I know mature deer don't bed just at, at random, but man, in some of these places, it just feels like they just got tired and laid down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then I, I have found some worn down beds but, you know, and I've maybe placed trail cameras like around these and stuff like that to see like when they're being used and how consistently they're being used and stuff like that. But I've all I've almost always felt like those worn beds in that in the one piece of big woods that it was almost rut bedding because I could almost always find it in relationship to like a scrape or really close or adjacent to doe bedding or something like that to where I felt like it was really rut bedding and less like their consistent, you know, fall range bedding prior to prior to rut. You know, is any of that, do you see any of that or are you 
or are you really seeing like consistent betting where those bucks are using like those same beds over and over and over again? No, I, I to be honest with you, I, I find very few beds that, uh, uh, I feel like a buck is using consistent enough that, you know, that you could, you know, catch the right uh, wind direction and have total confidence that you could go in there and at least see him. Right. You know, uh, whenever I, I'm talking about consistent betting, I'm talking about, you know, uh, betting areas within a buck's sp- home. Yeah. Betting, betting okay. areas. And th- you know, this, this area could be five acres. It could be a hundred acres or, right. you know, bigger, you know, but now he'll have more than one of those type, you know, spots, you know, mm-hmm. generally, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, mountain bucks, you know, that they have almost an oval, uh, like, uh, home range, you know, and, you know, it, it might take them a day or two or longer to, to make that circuit, you know, mm-hmm. and and it depends on a lot of variables too, you know, you know, like early October, you know, uh, once the white oaks uh, or the acorns are starting to hit the ground, I think that Buck's core areas shrink down extremely small. And, you know, I think that's one reason that uh, during that time period it is so hard to get their pictures, you know, right here all through the summer, you've, you've been getting their pictures. And uh, then all of a sudden, velvet sheds and they disappear. Well, it just so happens that the, you know, not too far after that, you start having, you know, acorns and stuff dropping. So these bucks, they really shrink down their uh, core area, uh, small, and you stop getting pictures of them. You move cameras around; they're hard to pick back up. And uh, but I feel like that if you do, then you have found where he's at, but it's a short window opportunity there, you know. Right. Because once we start moving closer into November, you know how those bucks are. They start, you know, uh, yeah. spreading out, uh, you know, opening up their home range. And uh, so, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, based on the time of the season, you know, early October, they're going to be in smaller areas. Once they start uh, into November, then they're going to start using more of their home range. And, you know, they may be in bedding this one thicket for a day or two, and then they're gone half a mile away for a few days. You know, just going from doe family group to doe family group because here in the mountains you have pockets of deer. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think that, uh, uh, you know, that he just goes from pocket of deer to pocket of deer. Now, once it gets uh, into December, you know, or, well, I'm going to say around the first of the year, then, you know, uh, these bucks, you know, that they start really focusing on uh, um, food heavily and they're traveling very short distances and uh and then that's whenever i start seeing the really wore out beds you know because that they're you know they're not going very far and they're coming you know they found a food source they want to bed close to that food source to kind of reserve calories right right? they don't want to move as they want to move as little as possible right yeah that's right and and even though you know uh these bucks have really large home uh, or uh bedding areas within their home range i think that you know, uh, because they're a solitary animal, their bedding is more precision than, say, a doe would be. Right. So, you know, they're going to be most likely bedded on a point or, you know, something like that. Whereas a, a doe, you know, family group, they're going to be, you know, they could be bedded on a flat and the wide open woods, you know. Mm-hmm. So just because it sounds like they're, uh, um, Bedding areas are very uh, random and and big. I, I, they're very strategic within those places where they'll bed. You know. 
All right, this next clip again. It's uh Nate, that I did I think two episodes with Nathan and they were just chocked full of information. So if you want to get the full the full dealio, just go to the website and or to whatever app you use and just look for those episodes because they were just full of really killer information, which is why we have multiple clips uh, from Nathan. This next one again is is with Nathan, um, and this is something I think that as people evolve as as bow hunters, you start to get more in tune with, I think, you know, early, maybe in your hunting career, you find the area where a buck is living or a deer that you're trying to kill or just deer in general, maybe might be one way to frame it. Um, but in the guys that have high level success often are able to kind of really fine tune and find the spot within the spot. So they will be able to find the precise tree that is going to give them an opportunity within the spot that they're hunting. You know, they're not just picking a random tree and it's not, it's not by coincidence. It's very, very kind of calculated. So that's the one thing we talk about. The other thing we talk about, and this is hard to do. Uh, I think it's, it's easy to talk about maybe a little harder to do in the moment. And that is, you know, the more and more I talk to these guys who I consider to be high level, very efficient killers, there's something that starts to kind of ring true with a lot of these guys that oftentimes, not all the time, but a large percentage of the time they're hunting off the big sign that they find. So they aren't necessarily hunting over that big rub that they found. They're not necessarily hunting over that, you know, monster scrape that they found knowing that mature animals maybe behave a little bit differently than the rest of the herd. They're trying to figure out again, what is the spot within the spot that might be off that big sign but is going to put you in the right place to have an encounter and potentially put an arrow in the deer that you're, that you're trying to hunt. That's what we talk about in this clip. I want to shift gears here a minute and I want to start talking about your setups and like how you're kind of picking where you're going to set up. Because I, I think for some people out there listening, like when they hear, when they, when they're hearing us talking about not setting up on the hot sign, I think all the conventional wisdom, probably what they've read in media, what they've watched in media and stuff like that is you set up on, on the sign, right? And here we are talking about, you know, trying to find like the outskirts of that sign and where you can, you know, possibly, possibly intercept. So I guess talk to me about how you're kind of, you know, what your setups will like will typically look like, you know, like how you're picking your tree and, you know, are you looking for, you know, it, you know, especially in like the mountain kind of areas, are you looking for certain like multiple terrain features to kind of all come together at a certain spot that makes you feel really good about being just off that big sign or whatever the case is. I guess just talk to me about how you're kind of picking those spots within the spot. Well, uh, you know, you, you said it best right there, you know, multiple, uh, train features or, uh, habitat edges that the more of those type of spots that you come in to have coming into one place, the better, of course, cause you're going to, you know, that just, uh, every terrain feature that you have, uh, multiplies your chances of uh, a good deer coming through there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in places like that, bucks are more likely to come through but you know like just single like a saddle mm -hmm. or a bench or something other like that you know single type uh terrain features bucks tend to uh skirt around the outer edge of mm -hmm. it you know yep. uh I, I really like hunting uh secondary ridges i spend most of my time hunting secondary ridges but i don't hunt right on top of the ridge you know i'm mm -hmm. i'm almost always off one side or the other you know, and generally I'm, you know, on the leeward side yep. uh, and, you know, that, that, that kind of accomplishes two things there, you know, 
uh, that puts you downwind and just so happens that puts the buck downwind of uh, the the same area that you're hunting, you know. So if you right. play in the wind, then you're most likely putting yourself in position uh, for an encounter with the buck anyway. Right. But, you know, uh, I was kind of looking at my um, uh, Onyx the other day because I'm all the time getting people send me uh, topo maps. Mm-hmm. you know, asking me to kind of help them, you know, decide on places, you know, and the most obvious places, you know, that you uh, are going to be, uh, you know, saddles or any terrain feature that pops out on, uh, you know, your Onyx or Topo map. Mm-hmm. But I have found that most of my spots are not in those spots. Yeah. You know, they're more in the micro terrain features, you know, uh, that you can't see on, a topo map, you know, or uh, satellite imagery, you know, in the mountains, that is, you know, right, especially whenever it comes to uh, satellite imagery. But, um, you know, I, you know, I'm just always off to one side or the other of any terrain feature, or, you know, I'm down under the top of the ridge, uh, along the edge of a, you know, if it's rhododendron, I'm usually, you know, hunting the edge of that. If it's uh, mountain laurel, I'm usually back in it, you know, a little ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's n- there's not really a specific thing that I say that I focus on other than, you know, if it's a bench, I'm going to be either below the bench or above the bench. I'm going to be hunting right on the bench. Right. You know, on either end of that bench is usually good because, you know, everything kind of converges, you know. Uh, you know, even though a buck, you know, most of the time they'll go around the below the lip of the bench, you know, but by the time they get out toward the end of it, you know, the, the trail that goes across the bench as well as his trail is going to be at the closest point. Right. At the, you know, uh, so that's how I go about, you know, uh, deciding on where I want to hunt. And of course, you know, it surprises me how many people go up a, a electric pole straight tree you know with yeah. no cover on it yep. you know and you'll you'll have two guys up those one a cameraman and one's the hunter you know yep. and they stick out like a sore thumb so you know i'm always looking for trees that give me plenty of cover you know that's i think that's where a lot of hunters fail you know they yeah they, they just don't choose a tree that gives them sufficient cover you know all right this next clip is the fourth and final i think it's the fourth <clears throat> but it's the final clip with our buddy nathan killen and uh what we're talking about in in this clip particularly is you know throughout this podcast that we did together he had mentioned a couple of different times um secondary ridges and like certain terrain features or topography features if if you will um and that's something that maybe not everybody really kind of knows about is you know those secondary ridges so you have a ridge that might run let's just say north and south for example and then in the secondary ridges that come off it are those small ridges that kind of jut off to the east or west right those are often really good times to or really good places to kind of find um to find to find buck bedding you know those are kind of places that if you see them on a map they're all you know oftentimes worth you know, looking, uh, looking into, to try to locate some bedding. Of course, there's gotta be a couple other things that might be in play habitat, you know, the right amount of cover and stuff like that. But at least on a map from a topo perspective, those things kind of stand out and are, are worth potentially investigating. The other thing you talked about that I found really, really interesting is the Eastern end of a main Ridge. Um, 
which I thought was really kind of cool. Like he, he seems to kind of have found some consistency in finding, you know, bucks bedded on the Eastern ends of these, you know, main ridges. So we're no longer talking about the secondary ridges. We're talking about a main ridge. It's going to run East to West, that Eastern side of it. He really particularly likes a lot of the reason why is because, and again, this would play into your secondary ridges too, is thinking about what your prevailing wind is, um, where the sun rises first, especially if it's cold, it's going to be, you know, the, it rises in the east. So that side of the bay ridge is going to heat up first. And we talk about all this secondary ridges in eastern end of a main ridge in this clip. I want to go back to, you've mentioned secondary ridges a couple of times and I just... I would love for you just for everyone out there listening to kind of describe what you mean by that. And if maybe describe what it looks like on a topo map. So people will understand like when they're looking for a secondary ridge, what it is or looking, you know, that's going to potentially stick out to them. Well, you have a main ridge that will run a long distance, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in my area, most of our ridges run east to west. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that will be a major ridge. And then off both sides of those major ridges, you'll have these little uh, finger ridges that, that come off, you know, ever so often. And you'll have these drainages, of course, in between each one of those ridges. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of areas that I focus on is those secondary ridges. Yeah. And, you know, another great uh, uh, area that I like to, and, and generally, uh, most of the ri secondary ridges that I'm hunting are on the eastern end of those uh, main ridges because now mm -hmm. I found a lot of big deer love to uh, bed on the very end of those main ridges on the eastern uh, facing slope there hmm. you know you've got a lot of things working or they have a lot of things working for them then you know most of our wind comes out of the west so you know they've, mm -hmm. they've got that westerly wind coming across the top yep. the, the uh, sun rises in the east you know, uh, and that is the very first uh, uh, surface of the earth that the uh, uh, sun is you know starting to hit so you you start having, you know, not only is it, you know, on really cold days, you know, that's the first warm place that they're going to get, but that's the first place that you're going to get uh, any thermal, thermal activity, pool. you know, as yeah. far as thermals rising, you know. Yep. So uh, those are, you know, good spots to look for. Now, I can't guarantee that you'll always find a big deer there, but that's a good place to look, you know. So the eastern end of a ridge on a second on a secondary ridge is the is the spot is what it sounds like or at least a good well, place to start. Well, uh, on secondary ridges, yes, uh, that eastern face is good, but I'm talking about the very end of a main ridge where it, it drops off. Okay. All right, that is it for Nathan. Uh, the next uh, series of clips we're going to have come up is with our buddy Eddie Claypool. One of my favorite podcasts from this past year, Eddie is just maybe the OG. I'm not even going to say maybe he is the OG of like the DIY traveling bow hunter. He's been doing it for forever, um, has a ton of big animals, everything from elk to whitetails, like you name it. He's he's killed it with a bow um, and is just a no BS BS guy. And he knew from an early age what his passion was and he kind of built his life around the idea of being able to spend as much time with the bow in his hands and in the woods as he possibly could. Um, basically f all fall from, you know, September through the end of November, essentially. And this clip, uh, initial clip here with Eddie is really kind of him talking about how he built that purpose built life to do what he was passionate about. I think that's the one thing that I've appreciate, you know, most about your, your story and how you've kind of come to be, you know, who you are and who people, you know, how people know you 
is right. the, the fact that it was self-made and it is DIY and it's, you know, right. it's, it's right. hunts that anybody can go do, you know, and that's it the is. part. I, yeah. And that's, the, that's yeah. the part that I love about it. And that's kind of what, you know, inspired uh-huh. me to really start doing right. more traveling and, and hunting different places. And, you know, right. it, it helps me, you know, that experience of hunting different places. I try to go somewhere new every year. And a lot of times I, I don't True. even get a chance to scout True. it. I just show up and hunt it, you know, for a week or two weeks or whatever. Right. And it helps make right. me a better hunter, I feel, because I'm having to always process things that I'm seeing on, on the fly, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, granted, I would love to have some time to scout. A lot of times it'd be helpful for sure, <laughs> right. you know, but, right. yeah. um, you know, it's, uh, I'll take what I can get because I'm chasing, the, I'm chasing experiences. Exactly. You know, that's what I'm doing is chasing that's experiences. Um, but the one thing right. I want to kind of circle back to here is, you know, you uh-huh. mentioned lifestyle at one point. And uh-huh. I think that that's uh-huh. one of the interesting things where it's like you prioritized hunting as one of the things in your life that you wanted to do, you know, above a lot right. of other things. And right. I've heard you kind of talk about it before. You really kind of built your life around to be able to hunt as much as you want to. Like you had a purpose built life yeah. that would allow you to yeah. do the things you want to do. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you how you set that up or how you kind of accomplished that? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, I don't know where I fit into this category of humanity and normal, especially, but I just know <laughs> my experience. And, and from the moment I went out there and did that, I had a passion that I don't know even know how to explain it. It was going to happen one way or the other. And so I just immediately started improvising every day of my life for the next quite a few years to get things. I mean, at age 20, you know, you're you're just ma- married with children. You're just getting going. And there's so many things to juggle. But I always kept the vision, basically, of the beginning of elk season in Colorado in my mind. And I worked toward that all year. I rat hold money. I worked extra jobs. If I needed a pair of shoes, you know, I'd, I'd go haul hay a day and get the money and buy them. If I needed a uh, backpacking uh, one-man tent, man, you know, I mean, I remember the days when something like that was a year-long process for me to be able to get it, to purchase mm-hmm. it. It was a major uh, drain on the family if I took a $100 bill and did something. We were living from Friday to Friday paychecks, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I I always tried to be a good family man, but I don't know if I was or not. Many people said I was not. Um, many people said I was. Um, we all know how that goes with life. <laughs> right. uh, you're going to have your haters and you're going to have the people that see the reality. I, you know, I spent a lot of time with my family. I took them up there with me unbelievable amounts of time and introduced them to all that stuff. Some, you know, some liked, some didn't, but I just had a way of working all year and working extra and figuring out how to manage my occupation to where I would be on jobs that would be working maybe seven days a week sometimes for a month or two for 12 hours a day. And I would pay my house payment two months ahead of time 
so that I didn't have to make a house payment for the month of September and November. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I often run right straight home from a hunt in Colorado that would be five weeks long, get home, and the next day be back on a seven-day-a-week, 12-hour-a-day job, work it till November 1, get amazingly laid off, mm-hmm. and uh, then be off all the month in November to hunt. So, I mean, it was just a matter of scrapping in every direction I could to keep the ball rolling called you know, married with children and, uh, and yet being able to supply, I mean, since I've been about 20, the past 40 some years, I have only worked a job one fall autumn in my entire life. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty good. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I literally work, you know, August through December one year, I've never worked August through December other than that one year in 40 some years. So how many people can do that? Not very many, if any, you know, it takes, you know, it's it's really the life of a single young man. Um, If you're going to do it, you need to get out of high school, go tackle it, learn it, do it. And then maybe wait, get married later in life. And when you're ready, you've got a lot of that out of your system. Maybe does that make sense? All right. These next two clips, we're going to smash two together here. I'll just kind of set both of them up at the same time because they're all they're they're actually kind of uh kind of related. So the first clip you'll hear with Eddie uh here coming up is really kind of talking about the watershed moment for him whenever deer hunting really kind of made sense to him. I guess is one one way to put it. You know, Eddie admits, you know. What he figured out elk, I, I believe, before he really felt like he figured out uh, out whitetails, um, and it wasn't until at one point that he got the opportunity to basically kind of chase them all fall every day. He hunted them, and you know, and what he'll talk about here is really him learning intimately about how they lived through you know the months of October and November. You know, and really observing that during that period was really kind of the watershed moment for him that put a lot of things into perspective. And once that happened, you know, he then the switch kind of flipped and he was then able to really start to capitalize on, you know, more mature deer and just started slaying, slaying really, really good deer, essentially. The second clip that you'll hear um, from Eddie in, in this in this you know, little series here of clips that's coming up is, you know, him talking about really examples of what he looks for that is out of the ordinary to find mature bucks. One of the things that kind of stuck with me whenever I got to talk to Eddie uh, during this podcast was you have to think different to kill big deer. They're not typically going to be, or mature deer, I should say, they're not typically going to be in the places where you find other deer, like the true kind of monarchs. Um, you know, they're going to want like their, their personalities are just different, you know? And, and what he talks about in, in this clip is, you know, what he looks for whenever he's trying to find that out of the ordinary spot. And uh, during the course of the podcast, we talked a lot about, you know, hunting in like blue stomach because he does blue stomach because he hunts a lot, you know, for white toes, at least in Oklahoma and Kansas. Um, earlier on, I think he did a lot of hunting in, in Colorado for whitetails. I think it was Eastern Colorado. Um, but you know, 
from going out to the Plain States and hunting this year, I could see what he was talking about. Like it, it made sense because you would find deer out there when you were glassing and what you felt like was a really, really random out of the way place that you wouldn't think there would be any deer. But that of course is where a, a giant would be right. Chad, of course, while we were out there that kind of played out, you know, it was an area where he thought that, you know, had really good deer sign, but there was a ton of people sign, ton of pressure sign in there. And, you know, he ended up finding a bed and it was in an area that was kind of like, huh, you know, that's interesting that this, this bed is here and ended up killing a, a Boone and Crockett deer. So these next two clips are with Eddie. I hope you dig them. What was, you know, yeah. what was your, you mentioned, you know, elk was something that you just like, it just clicked and made sense. What about, right. what right. was the thing for whitetails? Like, I guess, you know, give me a sense of, do you remember a specific kind of watershed moment for whitetail hunting where, you know, where things just all of a sudden clicked and made sense? And it was like, okay, I got it. I understand yeah. it now. It was a watershed season. It was a three month grind. It was 1988. And I had been at it progressing a little bit more each year. I was still in the infancy stages. I'd killed deer, nothing real big. But I finally got access to a quality piece of property here in my home state that was big enough for me to go in there and just hunt them all day long, every single day, and not have to worry about them being run amok. I became a deer observer. And I went in there, and I hunted between October 1 and December 31, which was our bow season. Mm-hmm. I hunted every day out of those three months except three. Three days out of those three months, I, I was not there. Mm-hmm. And out of the days I was there, 60 some of them i was there from daylight to dark okay i got through that year with deer on the brain i wa- <laughs> i watched deer do everything deer do i learned more about whitetail deer in that season in those thousands of hours i sat out there um I, I i just had a massive cram course on their behavior and how they function and i just come to some realizations that season of what had to be done, you know, through the different stages of October, November, and December, how they lived their life, how they utilized their habitat, how their behavioral characteristics, everything from does to button bucks to two and a half year old bucks to the big mature bucks. I mean, I watched them, I learned them. And after that season, then I fell into it like, you know, a, a duck in water. I just, <laughs> Then, then all I had to do was start branching out and going to where I could hunt big deer then. Right. And, you know, I started going out of state. I, I, back in that day, I had a, about a three or four-year run in eastern Colorado that was incredible. I, I went out there. That was one of the first places I traveled to back in the late 80s was in eastern Colorado. I was driving through it every year to go up there and go hunting, and I had become aware there were whitetails in eastern Colorado. I went out there, and for three or four years, I had seasons that would rival anything anybody could do with money i mean i was seeing one to four boone and crockett plus bucks every year like is there one thing that you could point to that was the hardest thing for you to learn about whitetails that that let you start to get consistent on them because for me i'll give you a for example for me things started making a lot more sense to me once i had once i was able to start once I was able to stop thinking about what my wind and thermals were going to do, that I could just get to a spot and I could understand what 
my prevailing was and what the thermals were going to do as the day as the day changed, you know, when, uh, whether it was morning into, you know, afternoon or afternoon right. into evening. Once I understood how to give the deer the wind and I understood what yeah. my thermals were going to do and how to play those, everything started right. making a lot more sense for me. It became yeah. not easy, I don't want to say, but it became I knew how to hunt areas when I got to them. I didn't have to think about it anymore. Is there anything like that for you that was that was more challenging to pick up and learn that once you kind of got it, it was kind of the nail in the coffin, so to speak. Well, I'm sure. And I think back about picking up, you know, all I learned so much about the thermal and I was all just going to say, I well, learned, cunning, yeah. Yeah. Out West, you absolutely live and die by thermals out West in the mountains. So I already had that down before I got good at whitetail. The thing that really, and you know, I'm weird here because, I'm not saying that what I did for all these years on whitetails was the best approach to kill the biggest bucks, but it it was what I fell into. It's what I did, and it's feathered my nest well. Um, I haven't killed 200-inch deer. You know, I've killed absolute dump truck load of book bucks and lots of – my best bucks are up in the upper 180s. You know what I'm saying? Right. But what I learned was this, how to hunt them during the peak of the rut um i knew that i was probably never in my lifetime going to have a place that was unbothered i was going to either be hunting public land or somewhere that is a freak show so i was not going to be able to set up these hunts like we see on the tv shows where you know you've got this big acreage and you you get all everything and you can go in there and you know their pattern and i I knew that was never going to be me so i decided i was going to have to learn to hunt them during the only time the big ones are at their weakest moment, during that helter-skelter time when they're breeding and they're out of their mind, mm-hmm. and they're staggering around doing dumb stuff. So what I learned from watching them way back there, and it took me quite a few years even after I learned this to start putting it in practice because you just can't stick your neck out far enough to go for this, is how those big ones, the ones that you don't rarely ever see, you don't even know they're around, the vapors, those giants, how that every time after year after year they showed up, it was always in the most off-the-wall place and off-the-wall time. It's never in the standard place in the standard time. And so when I finally got a grip on that and started going out of the normal on my places and times, I started killing my biggest bucks. Hmm. Now, it's more like the place you said before, because you're stepping out into a place there where you're not going to see very many deer very often. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You've got to get away from that willingness to most everybody wants to hunt where all the hot sign is and where the freak shows going on. Well, that's fine. You're going to have a lot of fun down there and you're probably going to kill one forties. You know what I mean? Right. Um, Yeah. I killed the bigger ones out in the far reaches of the, fringe habitat out there where nobody hunts where they actually spend most of their time does mm-hmm. that make sense yeah no it totally makes sense i mean i'm just curious can you give me because i'm trying to envision this is there uh-huh. a, is there an uh-huh. example or is there a strategy that you've used it, maybe it's not even that it's been consistent but it's like maybe there's a strategy that uh-huh. you're remembering that work can you just give me an example of of one of these kind of setups, you know, what the scenario was time of year, things like that, just so I can kind of wrap my head around what you're, cause I totally agree with you. And I've heard this. I think folks have kind of, you know, had, have kind of know this in the back of their mind. Right. But it's a really, really hard habit to break, to get off all that sign. 
and yeah, you know, and move yeah. to an area where you you take a look around and you and you look at it and you say, it doesn't look like a deer would ever live here. But that's where the yeah right. Yep. So give me an example, I guess, <laughs> of like a hunt where it all played out like that, or mm-hmm. like a tactic that you used right. to, to to get it done. Well, I'll give you a good one, and this is probably one of the oldest whitetail bucks I've ever killed. He was way past his prime. He was an ancient old monarch, prairie prairie deer out of Kansas. I was hunting in a section, a, a literal, you know, square mile section of prairie that didn't have 15 acres of cover in the whole square mile, and it was patchy, it was stringer, it was brush, and I had, on the next section over is a big creek bottom. That's where all the signs at. That's where all the deer were at. Uh, you could go down there and just froth at the bit. That's where 99 out of 100 guys wanted to go hunt. Well, I had kind of started seeing and learning, caught some crossing the road at night and different things coming out of that prairie. And I was like, something, I got to get this going. So I go out there. I, I took a day and beat that down. And I learned that there were swags, I call them, uh, uh, gentle gullies out in there that you didn't even know were out there that had little brush patches and different things. And I found one that had about three cottonwood trees in it, about 100 yards apart up and down it, wide open country. You could see the horizon for 360 degrees around you, just blue stem prairie. And in there, in that one swag, was a big old honking signpost rub. And I said, okay, that's what I thought. And that's, that's all I need to know. So I put me a stand in this cottonwood, and I'm telling you, if I didn't ever feel like one of the dumbest, I mean, <laughs> if you saw where this was at, you would have a problem believing it. I still, I mean, it's unbelievable. You wouldn't think white-tailed deer were even out there, and there weren't hardly any out there, and there weren't really very many does at all around anywhere, bucks either. It was just this one great big one, and I knew he was there because his rub's right here in front of me. I sat there for three days from dark in the morning till dark in the evening, and I caught glimpses of three or four different deer at a distance during that time, and I was just about at my wit's end. I was just, I, every day I was getting more convinced I was a Looney tune, <laughs> and it was November, November the 18th, I'll not forget it, the third day, the fourth day I sat there was my birthday, November the 18th, so it's right in the middle of breeding season. And since then, I've kind of learned, you may have heard of breeding hideouts, breeding Mm -hmm. sanctuaries. Well, I was evidently in that big buck's little hidey hole out there in the prairie. And sure enough, right at dusk on that fourth day, and I I really believe it's going to be my last day sitting out there. I don't think I could have took it any longer. (laughs) Right in the evening, I seen a doe coming um, across the prairie, and then right behind her was that giant they come over that prairie for a mile and come over in there and dropped into that little swag I was in and ended up, he ended up right at the end of shooting light where I could shoot him and kill him. And he was uh, as old as any white-tailed buck can get and live in the wild. He had virtually no teeth left in his head. He was just an ancient, monstrous old monarch. Now, his antlers probably had been bigger at some point in his life, you know, mm-hmm. but uh he still grossed around 170 as an old downhill buck. Right. And, uh, nope. you know, I just went out there and put in the dues that, you know, I don't think very many guys would enjoy that hunt at all. And I don't advise them to do it because it's not fun. Um, <laughs> it's mentally draining. Uh, but, boy, I mean, if you're after just a big one, what I've learned in the open country is 
get out there in the fringe stuff. I mean, when I used to hunt the Flint Hills area, which I just finally now, finally actually this year, got me a piece of land finally, first piece I've ever owned in my life, and I bought it up there in the prairie of Kansas. And, uh, you know, I can go down to my big creek bottom, and it's just lined with scrapes and rubs and all the deer and the sign, and you just have a ball down there hunting, and pretty soon you've run them all off. You know, you're hunting right in their living room. And uh, I don't even go down there much anymore. I just set out on the – I call it the spokes of the Ferris wheel. I set out on the far spokes, and – I let them come to me. I leave them alone in their core areas and don't educate them and don't relocate them. And I let my local deer be local deer. I don't move them. Hmm. And then sure enough, during that peak time in November, if I sit there and put my dues in, some old big old gomer is going to come staggering across the prairie and walk down my fence line. Because I I set out in hedgerows and fence lines that people don't even look at when they drive by. All right. This next clip is with our buddy Travis Keith, who Eddie Claypool turned me on to. He is someone who Eddie thinks is just one of the best hunters that he knows, which is high praise coming from a guy like like Eddie Claypool. And honestly, you know, it's 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 well placed praise. Uh, I've had a chance to obviously have Travis on the podcast, um, but have also kind of struck up just a long distance kind of friendship with him, where we text a lot you know, communicate with each other a lot back and forth. And, um, he had a really, he had a really good year this year. So I'm hoping that I'm able to get him back on the show, uh, here, you know, maybe this, this, this spring to kind of talk about the the year that he had. But what we talk about in this first clip, uh, with Travis is, is how he scouts and what he's using for, for access. Um, if you listen to the entire podcast, it's really kind of, you know, what I would classify it as is Travis's approach is really a meat and potatoes approach. Um, you know, he's looking for topography features and he's, you know, he's hunting during prime times where deer are going to be most, uh, move most often and provide, you know, the most, I guess, target rich opportunities essentially. But what he does really, really well, aside from just like his scouting and, and and just like he has a knack for being in the right spot, but it's because he spends a lot of time scouting with boots on the ground and he trusts his eyes, he trusts his instincts, and he trusts that whenever he's at a spot and he feels like it's the right spot, that he's willing to kind of put the time in and, and hunt that spot. But the thing that he's super diligent about is his access. And he's all he's oftentimes looking for some type of water access. And in this clip, he talks about his scouting approach to finding a new piece and then the access in this this one, what he has to go through, is uh, probably more than a lot of folks would would want to go through in order to access a piece to hunt, which is exactly why he had the result that he had on this particular piece. What's your typical scouting process look like out there? You know, let's say it's a brand new piece to you that you've never hunted before, a piece of public or walk-in access or you know whatever the case is. You know, where are you starting? Because for me when I look at it, whether it's Pennsylvania, Ohio, even when I was in Missouri or Iowa or whatever, you know, yeah, the terrain's a little bit different, but I'm still going to have elevation changes. I'm still going to have significant blocks of timber and, and things like that to where I'm, I have some familiarity with, with those things from living in Pennsylvania. So it translates, but for mm-hmm. me heading to somewhere like Kansas or Oklahoma, where the terrain is just so vastly different from what I'm used to, you know, I'm just right. curious, you know, for you, when you see a new piece and you're going to hunt this new piece of public you've never seen before, where are you starting? Are you starting online and kind of going from there or are you going straight boots on the ground? 
Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time, you know, on Google Earth, and I'll I'll look at different places, and I'll look at them a bunch of different times, you know, throughout the year sometimes, because it's funny, like, I'll, I'll look at something on Google Earth, and then I'll, I'll go walk it out, mm-hmm. and then I'll come back and look at it on Google Earth again, and then it makes better sense, and then, you know, I may go walk it out again and, and look at it again on Google Earth, and sometimes, like, it could be a year later, I'll pop, pull up Google Earth and look at the same place. But some, mm-hmm. I may think of something just a little differently, but, and a, a light bulb goes off and it's like, oh, I'm, I need to try that, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times I'm trying to think where people aren't going to try to be, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's hard, just hard. That's the hardest thing for me to figure is where somebody else doesn't want to go. Cause you know, if you pick a good looking spot, there's usually somebody else that did too, you know? So, yeah, but yeah. I mean, if it's a new place, I mean, I, I got to look at my access. Where can I come and go from this spot? And then, you know, if there's a particular piece that seems appealing, if I walk it out and, you know, I'm like, man, that's, that's a no brainer right there. I got to, I got to be able to get there and then look at where I have to come from. Can I, can I get to it safely? Mm-hmm. Um, I, for me, like can't stress enough the the access coming and going is you know, without something knowing you're doing it is is as important as anything else, you know. Yeah. Um if is if they me... know you're if they know you're coming, it's you know, it's game over really. Right. You know, you don't really have a chance before you start unless you just get, you know, the dumb running buck that comes by, you know, which which can happen, you know. Yeah, or you just get uh, or but... just get super super lu- you know, super lucky. I'm... Oh yeah, and that, that stuff happens. I mean yeah. you have to you, for that stuff, you just have to be present, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and good stuff happens, like, you know, but you got to be there for it to happen. So. Yeah. What a, um, so but, I'm, I'm imagining with as flat as I'm imagining it's flat. So, I mean, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it's super flat and, you know, not a lot of topo to kind of hide behind. So when you're talking about access, like I can, I can envision myself and this is just, again, a guy coming from a flatlander or a, a, you know, a guy coming from Pennsylvania, right. <laughs> going to come to, mm-hmm. you know, the, the plain States to hunt. I'm thinking about my access. And that's one thing that I've thought about in, you know, here I'll use, you know, whether it's terrain to kind of hide behind, you know, I can, I, I can envision, you know, making sure to use, making sure my wind is correct for access in the planes. I get mm-hmm. it. But the part that I struggle with a little bit is how am I hiding? Like, how am I hiding myself? How am I not being skylit? How am I not, you know, kind of out <laughs> in the wide open, you know, because there's not yeah. a whole lot to hide behind. So how do you, you know, give me a, I guess, walk me through what you would, what you would do to access a property. Like, you know, what's a crazy thing you might do? Are you like going to a, a crick bottom and just walking the crick bottom up to be, to be hidden? But you know, what, what's your approach for that? If, if I can come up with a, a plan where I feel like I am safe, and I don't care what I have to do. If I have to go out of my way to do it, like mm-hmm. I will do that. If, if I think that, you know, if me cutting across here is wrong, cause like the wind's wrong or something, if I have to go way out, out of my way, you know, I, I will just cause that's, that's probably the most, one of the most important things for me. Um, it, uh, this is an example of, of one, one thing that I've, I've hunted for two years. It's on public. It's on a, on a little river, um, I can I can easily walk up to this stand from from where I park. It's it's easier to walk up there, 
But if I were to do that, everything would know I'm coming. And I just, I know, I just feel, you know, that that isn't going to work. You know, I could, I could get, kill something, but not, you know, I'm going to alert a lot of animals when I walk in there. So there's a, there's a river thing and I, I'll put it in my canoe and I'll, I got a paddle. It's like three quarters of a mile up this river, completely like going the wrong direction because there's a big oxbow that goes way out and around. That's always fun too, well, going the wrong direction. Right. <laughs> yeah, you go in the other direction, you know, which is, that's okay. But once I get to the end of this oxbow, there's like a massive log jam that's like too big to cross. It's like that's a hundred yard log jam. Mm-hmm. So before season starts, I have to hide another kayak or canoe on the other side of this log jam so and i leave it there all season for the time i'm hunting just way back off in the woods on the side of this creek or whatever and so you know before the dark of the morning i get up and i paddle about three quarters of a mile to the log jam have to get out walk over the you know walk over this little bit of at the point of the oxbow and then get back in this other little boat that i stacked and then paddle another little you know quarter to half up to my to my tree stand or whatever i could easily walk up there it's much easier but i can i can do that you know i take one boat and get in the other boat and then paddle up there and climb out of the bank and climb up my tree and and nothing really knows i'm i came or went you know i can sit there all day and then get back in my boat and float out of there you know and and i don't feel like i damaged the place if i gotta you know sit there again all day tomorrow or the third day you know yeah. Uh, um that water access that is one, pretty that's pretty slick, man. How how far are you how far is your setup from getting out of that second boat? Would you say? Um they're normally like really close to the creek. Like mm-hmm. that one's that creek's probably like ten yards off the bank, you know. because mm-hmm. um, I just I want to just appear, you know, if I could if I had one magical power just <laughs> to teleport, you know. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, and a lot of my setups are, are via canoe or kayak, and it has, you know, dealing with, with either going up creeks or rivers or crossing them or, or coves and with the wind in my favor. And that way I feel like typically I'm, you know, I'm like 100% safe. You know, if, I'm, mm-hmm. if I have a westerly wind and I'm cutting across, you know, a body of water and hit that bank and get out and get in a tree and my wind is blowing back across the water most of the time mm-hmm. like most of the time i don't ever bump anything you know right Some, sometimes there's stuff that may be there when you get there but right like that's that's not too big of a deal yeah and i would imagine but, uh, sitting that close to the water too you probably get a nice little thermal pool into that into that river yeah. whatever that bottle bottle yeah. of water is just kind of yeah. suck it right down back down the river i'd imagine mm-hmm. especially yep. sitting that close and, on it i mean that that's a lot of that's a lot of what I look for. I mean, currently it's just different places that, <clears throat> that probably have water in the way, really, you know, mm-hmm. like a long time ago, I kind of, you know, I watched, I watched Eddie do some hunting and, and picked up on a couple things and, and, uh, decided I needed to, you know, be able to try to, to get to where some other people weren't going to get. And, you know, yeah. I just, I figured a certain amount of people have a boat or a canoe or something. And uh, a certain amount of those people are actually going to get up in the dark in November and go use it, you know, <laughs> and, and that's yeah. a very, that's a few amount of people, but 
All right, this next clip is our uh, final clip of this episode, and it's again with our buddy Travis Keith. Uh, he hails, of course, from uh, Oklahoma, and uh, I just thought that this clip was the perfect way to end this end this session. As I'd mentioned, Travis is one of my favorite people that I've talked to, one of my favorite people that I've that I've had the opportunity to meet through this through this podcast. And what we talk about on this clip uh, is. There's nothing really strategy related uh, in this. So you might be asking, you know, a lot of what I talk about is strategy and DIY hunting. So why am I adding something in that's not particularly strategy or tactic related? It's because sometimes hunting means a little bit more than filling the tag or, um, or the success that you're having, or it means way more than strategy or, or the tactic. And that's exactly what this clip talks about. Um, he had two different recoveries on deer that, you know, you know, I, I think he would agree. He probably, you know, felt like he made decent shots, but they maybe weren't as good as he, he had thought they were, or that he had hoped they were and had a long, hard, uh, kind of trying to find these deer, you know, after he, after he shot him and made, and made bad shots and what that does to you and kind of how you feel about it. Um, but what you will learn through this clip and the thing that I think that I appreciate the most about Travis, aside from his, just that he's a really good hunter is that his like his moral fiber and his and his deep faith I think are the two things from this clip that whenever he told me this story I kind of walked away thinking that man this guy's got his priorities in order like his his mindset is right um and then when you know that at the end of listening to the podcast with him it's not a surprise as to why he has the type of success that he has. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll leave you with this clip. Well, I mean, I think this is a perfect time. I just have like two more things for you. I think um, being present in the moment and the, making those memories. So what I wanted to see if you could do is if you would be willing or could share a specific hunt that sticks out to you when you look back that, that, that you really felt that this was a moment where either you like, you learned an important lesson, it helped you become a better hunter or something along the, or something that might've just been a really cool hunt. Do you have anything like that that sticks out to you? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just, I'll just touch on, you know, last year's season. Um, I, I killed a couple, you know, nice deer. Um, I, I hunted in Oklahoma. Um, out of that south wind stand I was talking about and ended up shooting shooting a good deer, um, what I thought to be in the liver. You know, it, mm. it was back and it was low, and uh, he didn't go very far, and he looked ill. He looked sick, you know. Um, we I backed out, and I, I waited like six hours before I came back, and me and my brother started looking for him, and we ended up, you know, jumping him up. He didn't go very far, um, and we ended up jumping him up a second time. And then after that, he made it to this weed field, and uh, you know, I lost him out there. Um, I spent a couple the next two days kind of looking, looking for him through that weed field, trying to figure out where he had went, and um, you know, never really figured that out. So I think by the third day, you know, it was time to go get back in a tree, and I went up to Kansas and um, shot uh, this other good deer um, in the exact same place, like. <laughs> in the liver um and he had the exact same reaction he didn't go very far and he looked very sick um it was 1 p.m you know and so i backed out and i didn't come back until the next morning 
you know, I knew six hours obviously wasn't long enough. And I, I had a good feeling he was going back to his bed. And so I wanted to let him get there and hopefully he was there the next morning, you know. So um I go back the next day and I make it to that bed. He's not in it. I do see a drop of dried blood and I see a drop of semi dried blood, which led me to believe he was there that morning and and he got up and walked out when, when he saw me walking in. And um so I walked up, you know, to the top of this ridge and looked around a little bit where I thought were, you know, just on a, a whim where I thought he might go through some thickets or whatnot. And I, I didn't see him. So long story short, I walked like five miles looking around um, this weed field and thorn field, you know, just randomly searching. And I, I found his second bed, which was maybe 100 yards from his first bed. And there was a drop of blood in it. I'd go back to this point and then I would, you know, I'd venture off and go search and then come back to this and regroup and, and just kind of search this whole area. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it was, it was getting three o'clock or so. I had about one more good long search before sunset. And, you know, and, uh, throughout the day, I never really got like discouraged and down, you know, it's real easy to get uh, discouraged and give up and, you know, think, you know, what you're seeing is terrible. Like there was very little blood, you know, and then and we, you call your buddies and you're like, well, I did this. Yeah. I could look this, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And, and they're like, yeah, that doesn't sound too good, man. You know, like, and it, it's discouraging, but um, in the, in the back of my mind, I always just kind of felt like I wasn't going to give up. And, and throughout that day of walking through all the thorns, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, Lord, just kind of guide my feet, you know, mm-hmm. um, just help me help me with my decision making here and there and just you know take me where i need to go and uh so I'm, i was laying in his laying in his bed you know kind of just relaxing figuring out what i needed to do and uh i was like I, I need to go one more good walk and i stood up and about 20 yards away there's a doe standing there and and she's like 10 yards off of this trail that i've already walked down there's a there's a deer trail and then she's just off of it a little bit and she's 20 yards from me and I kneel down and she kind of eventually gets nervous and leaves and I was like well I wonder what she was standing by and I was like I'm gonna walk over there and I walk over there and there's this deer laying there <laughs> and he's dead and he's 25 yards from where I've been looking all day long you know <laughs> like I walk five miles around him and he's 25 yards from where I've been laying you know looking and it was just like <clears throat> I, I, you know, I, <clears throat> I broke down in tears because it was just like um, yeah. the satisfaction of not not really giving up, you know, and 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 knowing that, uh, you know, he kept a good attitude, and it was like it was just kind of a test of like, you know, of will, of, of will, you know, not giving up, not getting discouraged, not getting down at the mouth, not, you know being like dang it you know mm-hmm. and just kind of going and going and going and then it was like it was like he was like you've been good you know like here you go right um, you, know, you, can, you can have him back like you're gonna you're, you're gonna hang it. on to this guy and you're gonna be a good steward to him like yeah you can have him back you know yeah and man i was so grateful yeah and uh so i brought him home and, and dealt with him and then ran right back up to the deer camp or whatever and and like uh, and was gonna get back in the stand you know and the the next day I'd, uh, I was going to go get in that Southwind stand where I wounded that first deer and, and 
hunt a little bit and then get down and go look for them. And, and uh, by the time it was, it's time to get down. And my brother was supposed to meet me and all this stuff. And I didn't want to bother his hunt. And I was like, you know, don't worry about it today. We'll do it tomorrow. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to go take this tree stand down. That's, you know, it's about a mile up the, up the river or whatever. And so I walked up, I walked up the river in the middle of the day and like took my, you know, I didn't walk actually right but take my canoe put take my canoe up the river or whatever and take my stand down and and you know that was kind of the end of the day i, I may have hunted that evening whatever so the next day comes and i'm gonna same game plan i'm gonna sit and then we're both gonna go look for this deer we're gonna beat this weed field down you know he's mm-hmm. got to be out there somewhere and and just as a reference from where i shot the deer let's just say he ran 400 yards south south you know right. and so um the, the tree stand i took down was a mile north so opposite direction. So um, I get down uh, on that Thursday, and I was like, "Well, I need to I need to go look for this deer." And then I, I remembered I'd left like this machete that was um, laying on the river up there when I took my stand down a mile up the river, like a twenty dollars machete from Academy. But my daughter um, had got it for me for Father's Day, like five mm-hmm. years ago or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And by the way, my daughter's name is Easton. Um, you know, so she got named after the arrows a long right. time ago. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But uh, so, so I was like, oh man, I was like, Easton got me the that machete. I need to go get it. You know, mm-hmm. and and it's a it's a Mongoloid of a walk. You know, and yeah. So I I walk up there and I get my machete and I'm just kind of walking back. I was like, I'll do a little, you know, November fresh deer scouting. You know, on my way back, like just look at some of this deer sign while I head back down that way to go look for my deer and. I'm going and I'm about halfway back. So I'm, you know, I'm still five, 600 yards north of my stand or whatever, which that deer had ran like four or 500 yards south, right? And, and I'm just in some big, like tall yellow grass flooded, you know, stuff and uh, along, along the river and kind of walk off in this little depression. And there was like a couple of cottonwood trees and I, I walked up in there and like i just had this feeling and i was like i was like this feels like a good place for something to like lay down and die mm-hmm. and and i looked over and like at the base of this cottonwood tree is this i see a deer's rib cage and i'm like well there's a dead deer and i walk over there and it's this it's my buck <laughs> that i had shot 10 days earlier Jeez. and and i you know for not Ten full days looking, you know, from from the dash shot him to two days looking to this, you know, I'd I'd been looking and I had my bow in my hand the whole time, you know, right. and I'd been looking for the deer actively to to try to, you know, find them and get them, and uh, and then you know here I go walking up the river and and I come back and all I've got is the machete in my hand and it hit me and it's like, you know, and and again I never really got down in the mouth about this deal either I was. I was, you know, bummed about the situation, but I wasn't, you know, I hadn't given up. Right. I, I didn't really expect to find them, but I, the story wasn't over. I didn't feel like it was over, like he was gone, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I was standing there and it, it was like the same, same feeling of like, um, you know, you've been, you've been good. And, uh, and here he is. And like, you, now you have the right tool to remove, you know, basically what you can salvage. You know, because the coyotes had got him, and he was ten days old, and right. you know the meat obviously wasn't as good. But you know, I 
I'd been walking around with a bow and arrow looking for him, and I wasn't really going to be able to remove his his head with that, you know. But um, mm-hmm. but you know, I, if I had not left that machete, you know, on accident the day before, you know, would have never made um, it there. And if I had if I if I hadn't decided to walk up there and get it, um, yeah, just because my daughter bought it for me, you know, yeah, like like well, you can't make that stuff up, you yeah, know? yeah. That I, I feel like that's her dear though, right? <laughs> do what i said i feel like that's oh, how yeah, you then yeah. right <laughs> she gets she gets her own deers for sure <laughs> yeah nice man but, well, but i mean that one was just like i don't i don't know how to like i couldn't make that up you know that's and crazy certain man. little two, things two happen di- and it's a, it's a gut a gut feeling of yeah you should you should go get that you know yeah and it would be really easy to be like no i'm not gonna walk up there and get that i'll just go buy a new one you know yeah All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there. I'd be super appreciative if you do those few things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see you all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.